quote, You are a woman like other women. You know nothing. That's what the main character says in an ancient Hittite myth while he's arguing with his wife. And his statement summarizes the way that most ancient cultures viewed women as foolish, petty, annoying, or worse. One Sumerian work describes women like this. She is flighty, she is a nymphomaniac, she is quarrelsome, a liar, a slanderer, she is worthless. Even the supposedly enlightened Greeks and Romans held women in low regard. One of the Greek poets called women the worst plague that Zeus has made. And that was actually the nicest of the quotes I'd pulled out for this sermon. And with this low view of women came a low social standing. Greco-Roman women had few legal and financial rights and most had no education. We can accurately say that the ancient world saw women as inferior to men and as a result women were disallowed from occupying the most significant social roles. Now this may horrify us today because we see women very differently than the ancients did. Despite ongoing discussion about lingering glass ceilings, unequal pay, the pink tax, and so forth, I've got to tell you women in our culture are a lot better off than women in the ancient world were. In fact, our laws reject the notion that one sex is superior to the other, and it was a woman on the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who wrote these words. The inherent differences between men and women remain cause for celebration, but not for denigration of the members of either sex, or for artificial constraints on an individual's opportunity. Such classifications may not be used as they once were to, crea to create or perpetuate the legal, social, and economic inferiority of women, end quote. So unlike the view of the ancient world that women were inferior and had no opportunity, in our world today we see women are equal to men, and so people believe that every opportunity available to men should likewise be available to women. I begin with all of this today because today we're going to look at one of the most important passages in the Bible about the roles of men and women in the local church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And this passage has been criticized by many people as being sexist and reflecting that terrible view of women that the ancient world had. But this morning, we're going to see that just isn't true. Because today we're going to see that the Bible puts forward a third way on gender. A perspective which is neither the ancient nor the contemporary perspective. The Bible tells us the truth that God has created men and women to be absolutely equal. And yet, God has also created men and women to be different. And this difference is intentional. And it shows us that God means for men and women to occupy different and complementary roles in some spheres of life, including in the local church. So that's what we're going to talk about today in three points. First, we'll see that God has created men and women to be equal but different. Second, men and women must take care to avoid selfish acts that disrupt congregational worship. And third, we will see some timeless instructions that God has given about the role of women in the local church. We start with our first point, which is that God has created men and women to be equal but different. 
You know, today much of our society believes that categories like men and women are old-fashioned and irrelevant. Instead, many people today believe that gender is a social construct which is fluid and that people should be able to select their own gender identities. But the truth is, friends, transgenderism is reality denial. It is a lie. Because in the Bible, we don't find dozens of genders. We find only two. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Maleness and femaleness is a part of God's creative order. And God has hardwired this binary into our biology through our chromosomes, which make us male or female. And the Bible tells us that our biological sex is fundamentally connected to who we are. So the gender binary is not a social construct. It is a divine construct. But we find a grander truth in Genesis 1 than the objective reality of gender. Because what we also find here is that God designed both men and women, and God declares that both men and women reflect his own image. There is no notion here of an inherent superiority of men or an inherent inferiority of women. Instead, we find here that the sexes share equality, dignity, and value. And yet, they are also differentiated. We find these same ideas in the New Testament. Everyone who repentantly believes in the gospel of the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus are on an equal footing with each other. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul's talking about believers and he says, You're in Christ You've now been adopted into God's family. You've been saved and forgiven and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have every spiritual blessing, believer. And then Paul says, this is true. No matter what your ethnicity is. In verse 28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. He says, this is true. No matter what your socioeconomic status is. He says, there is neither slave nor free. He says this is true no matter what your sex is. He says there is no male or female. Every believer, irrespective of ethnicity, economics, sex, and whatever other characteristic, enjoys the same blessed position because Paul says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Every believer is equal in the gospel. Friends, in Christ there are no second-class citizens. There is no inferiority. Men and women are absolutely equal in God's sight. And this is vastly different than how the ancient world talked about men and women, saying men are exalted and women are inferior. No, the Bible says men and women are equal. And yet, it also tells us there are differences between men and women. Friends, this dif differentiation is seen throughout nature, in both the plant and animal kingdoms. And it's clear from human anatomy. Men and women differ skeletally in their musculature, in their organs, and their hormones. Even brain scans show that men's and women's brains operate a bit differently. This shows that God has taken great care in designing men and women to be different from each other. 
And so we can infer that this difference is valuable and meaningful to God. And so we shouldn't be surprised when God intends for this difference, which is seen in nature, to also be seen in particular human institutions by assigning different roles to men and women. Now in the Bible, we see this commanded explicitly in just two institutions. We see it first in marriage. As God ordains men to lead the home and charges them to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And God commands wives to likewise submit to their husbands. Men and women have different roles in marriage. And men and women have different roles in the church. So God assigns different roles in particular institutions to men and women. And in this, we see the biblical perspective on gender also differs from the perspective we have in modern America, which says that the equality of the sexes means that there should be no differentiation of opportunities or roles between men and women. Friends, that idea basically flattens and denies the distinctions between the sexes to the point where the idea of differentiation makes no sense. And that is also another form of reality denial. But friends, God's way tells us the truth because God's way is higher and better than the wisdom of our culture. Men and women are equal, but they are different. And in the home and in the church, they must have distinct roles. And yet, this differentiation does not devalue men or women. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 11, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Both men and women are valuable, necessary, and interdependent for God's purposes. Now with that, we move to our second point, and here we come to our passage today, 1 Timothy 2. And what we find at the start of this passage is that Paul warns the men and women in the Ephesian church that they must stop engaging in selfish acts that disrupt congregational worship. Verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul's got a big problem. False doctrine has deceived many people in the Ephesian church. And this isn't just an intellectual problem. It caused a lot of interpersonal damage. In chapter 6, Paul says that the Ephesian heresy produced envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. It fragmented the church. And Paul has heard about this, and he is concerned. So he writes to Timothy, his longtime friend, who's now helping to lead the Ephesian church. And Paul says, you've got to fix this, Timothy. And we saw last week, Paul tells Timothy, you've got to start fixing this by fixing the church's corporate prayer. Because all of this infighting in the church has caused some of the church members to refuse to pray for other church members that they don't like anymore. Moreover, it seems that some of the Ephesians were unwilling to pray for unbelievers outside the church. But Paul says, no, that's not how prayer is to work in the church. When we pray together, we must pray for everyone, he says. Because that reflects the true gospel that calls on everyone to have repentant faith in Jesus. But now in verse 8, we learn about another problem in the church's prayer life. Some of the Ephesian men are using congregational prayer time as an opportunity to vent their anger towards their fellow church members. Now this would be bad enough if believers were just sitting in a room together praying and harboring anger in their hearts. Because remember, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, if you've got something against somebody, you better take care of it before you come to worship God. But what's happening here is even worse than that. Picture it. Paul says, people are raising their hands in prayer. That was like the, the prayer posture of the day. Our equivalent would be like somebody bowing their head and, and folding their hands. And then they begin to pray. 
But as they pray, they start praying, God, curse this person that I don't like in the room. Or they use their prayer as an opportunity to rant at someone else in the room. And this disgusts Paul. Because offering prayers before the church ought to be a holy act, an act devoted to God. But verbally attacking other people through fake prayer is not dedicated to God. It's the opposite. James 1.20 says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what the Ephesians are doing isn't righteous, it isn't holy, and Paul wants it to stop because it's disrupting and corrupting the church. It's disintegrating the unity of God's people even more. And it's taking the focus off of Christ and putting it onto sin. When the Ephesian church prays together, it must offer sincere, God-honoring prayers. And that's true for every church, Paul says, in every place. But notice that Paul addresses this instruction to the men. Why does Paul single out men here? Some people say Paul speaks to the men here because only men are allowed to pray when the church gathers together for prayer. I have to tell you I don't think that's correct, and I'll give you two reasons. First, Acts chapter 1 describes the first congregational prayer meeting. And we're told in verse 14 that the apostles, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, at this meeting, the apostles were doing the same things that Jesus' brothers were doing, and what the men were doing was the same thing that the women were doing, and what they all were doing was praying. And there is no textual basis here to justify the idea that one of these groups was conducting itself differently at this meeting than the other groups, that one of the groups was praying out loud and the others only silently. No. The women prayed alongside the men, and the apostles did not object. Second, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul corrects some practices in the Corinthian church's corporate worship. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. What's that mean? Good question. Here seems to be the situation. Men and women are verbally participating in the Corinthian church's worship service by offering prophecies and prayers. But the problem is, some of the men who are verbally participating are doing so while making a provocative fashion statement. We don't know exactly what the statement was. But whatever it was was suggestive of effeminacy and homosexuality, denying biblical truths about gender and sex. And Paul says, men, you must not look like that if you're going to lead worship, any act of, of verbal worship in front of the church. But then Paul speaks to the ladies. And notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, every wife who prays or prophesies dishonors her head. He doesn't say that. If Paul objected to women verbally participating in congregational worship, it would have been very easy for him to say that and forbid the practice. But he doesn't say that because apparently Paul does not object to it. Instead, Paul's concern is, again, related to provocative, gender-bending fashion statements in the church. So here are two passages in which it seems that the apostles permit women to pray verbally during corporate prayer. And I have to tell you, friends, that's not liberal theology, that's reading comprehension. And so for these reasons, we likewise encourage our ladies to pray at the Wednesday night prayer meeting. So, back to 1 Timothy 2. I don't think Paul addresses this command to the men because only the men may pray at corporate prayer. 
Okay, so why then does Paul address this to the men? Well, number one, because in Ephesus, the people perpetrating this sin were men. And number two, because Paul apparently believes sins like this are more susceptible to men than to women. But Paul wants the men to know public worship is not a time for sinful self-expression that disrupts the congregation. Public worship and prayer is a time to honor Christ. But now Paul speaks to the women, verse 9. He says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. But what's the issue here? Some women are wearing braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly clothes to church. In fact, based on Paul's use of the word likewise, it may be that these women aren't just wearing this stuff to church, but that they're wearing it while standing in front of the church and praying in front of the church, just like the angry men in verse 8. But to tell you, I think that this is likely because indeed the only other passage where Paul talks about women's fashion, 1 Corinthians 11, is also given in a context where Paul is concerned about the appearance of those who are leading corporate prayer. Okay, but what is the problem with women wearing braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire in church or while leading prayer? Is it that these objects are inherently wicked? I don't think so. Why not? Look at the contrast Paul sets up here. He doesn't say gold is bad, but silver is good. He doesn't say costly clothes are bad, but cheap clothes are good. No, he says on one hand are braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. And on the other hand are modesty, self-control, and respectable attire. The contrast is not bad items versus good items. It's bad items versus good concepts. And that tells us here that the issue isn't that these objects, these accoutrements of fashion are innately bad. Rather, the issue is that when these items were worn in the church in Ephesus, they created an impression or a message about the woman who was wearing them that she was not respectable. And you say, well, why do these items make a woman seem not respectable? What's wrong with, with having a wedding ring? What's wrong with hair braids? This doesn't make much sense to us today. Because these items don't suggest impropriety to us. But they did in Paul's day. And we know that from the writings of Philo, who lived at the same time as Paul. Because Philo reports that Greco-Roman prostitutes wore these very same things in that time. So the problem here is not with braids or gold in itself. The problem is there are women attending the Ephesian church and maybe even leading prayer in the church who are literally dressed like the prostitutes of the day. Now, today, this would look a little different than it did in Paul's time. Today, we'd think less about braids and gold and more about looking like you're hitting up the nightclub or showing lots of skin. But friends, what would happen if a woman showed up to church dressed like she was going out to pick up a guy? Or if she got up to pray while dressed immodestly? I've got to tell you what wouldn't happen. It wouldn't make everybody say, oh, I'm really devoted to focusing on praying to Jesus right now, right? Instead, it's going to put everybody's attention off Jesus and onto her. Men will stumble into lust. Their wives will be justifiably enraged. And Paul says this conduct is absolutely unacceptable because godly women should not dress in a way that communicates sexual availability. And certainly not when the church is gathered for worship. These women need to find some modest clothes. 
But even more than outward appearance, Paul says what Christian women really need to be known for in the church is not how they display their bodies, but how they display their faith. Paul wants Christian women to primarily be adorned by their good works, obedience to the commands of God. That's what good works really are when you look at the way Paul talks about them in like the, the book of Titus. That's what women need to focus on, obeying God, not trying to look hot at church, and not on trying to figure out how to become a dress code Pharisee at church, finding ways to feel self-justified by criticizing other people. I've got to tell you, friends, I've known ladies that did that, came to Sunday looking prim, prim and proper, feeling very self-righteous, and then during the week they spent it committing adultery. Don't imagine that the main thing that God cares about you is your dress. He does care about it. But more than that, ladies, he wants you to focus on cultivating a sincere inner virtue and loving and obeying his word. So what we find in our first point are two gender-specific commands related to selfish attention-seeking acts that were happening in the Ephesian church's worship. And these warnings remind us that men and women are different. We each have temptations that are more likely to stumble us than the opposite sex. And that's not to say that sometimes women don't want to pray angry prayers. And sometimes men may dress immodestly too. But usually these things stumble the sex as Paul talks about here. And he talks about that for a reason. And the truth is it's because men and women are different. And friends, in the church we're not to showcase these differences by attention-seeking behaviors. Because when we come together for worship, it's got to be focused on Jesus and not us. But now Paul comes to the heart of his instruction on gender roles as we come to our last point, which is that God's timeless instructions about the role of women in the local church are found in the remaining verses here. Look at verse 11. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Paul gives four commands here, which really form two pairs of contrasts. First, women are to learn quietly and not teach. And second, women are to be submissive and not exercise authority over men. Let's start with the first pair, which is that women are to learn quietly and not teach. It's important that Paul says women need to learn here. It's easy to overlook this and rush into what Paul prohibits. But friends, again, we need to see that Paul's approach to gender is radically different than that in the ancient world. Because ancient pagans discouraged educating women. The Greek playwright Menander said, A man who teaches a woman to write should recognize that he is providing poison to a snake. Even the Pharisees, who were not pagans, believed that woman, women should not receive a biblical education. In the Mishnah, one of the rabbis remarks, If any man teaches his daughter the law, it is as though he taught her sexual immorality. But Paul, who was trained by the Pharisees, has come to see in Christ that women are not inferior to men and that believing ladies need to learn the truths of the gospel and God's word so that they may grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So women in the church must learn. And Paul says they're to learn quietly. What does that mean? Historically, a lot of weight has been put on this word in evangelicalism, and here's why. When the King James Version translated this chapter... They translated this word quietly with the word silence. And King James Bible readers noticed that in another place in Paul's writings, Paul also commanded women to remain silent in church. In 1 Corinthians 14.34, in the King James we read, Let your women keep silence in the churches, 
for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Now, people took these two verses and they said, well, Paul's commanding women to be silent in church in both of these passages. So these passages must interpret each other, and together they generate a universal prohibition on women verbally participating in congregational worship. This then was taken as the authoritative final word on any matter related to women participating in congregational worship. So it didn't matter that Paul was open to women praying and prophesying in 1 Corinthians 11. It didn't matter what the book of Acts said, because this interpretation was determined to be the only thing that people needed to know about women in the church, which is that they'd better remain silent. And on this basis, many churches disallowed women not just from doing the things Paul says in our passage, but from reading the Bible aloud in church, or praying in corporate prayer, or leading in music. In fact, some churches went so far as to say women's voices should not be heard when the congregation sings, and they should not speak in the church building. What are we to make of all of this? Well, the big problem with this line of reasoning is that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 is different than what he says in 1 Timothy 2. We know this for two reasons. First, both passages have very different context. I argued in my series on 1 Corinthians two years ago that the prohibition on women speaking in 1 Corinthians 14 was related to only one part of the Corinthian church's worship service, its public evaluation of prophecies. We know that for four reasons. First, because the New Testament is repeatedly open to women prophesying, which 1 Corinthians tells us is a verbal act that the early church practiced only at congregational worship. So this cannot be a blanket prohibition against any verbal participation by women at church. Second, the command in 1 Corinthians 14 is given in the context of Paul's requirement that prophecies in the church had to be immediately evaluated by the church. Third, Paul justifies his command about silencing women in 1 Corinthians 14 by appealing to concerns about maintaining marital propriety between husbands and wives before the church. This concern makes the most sense contextually if what Paul is trying to do is keep a woman from publicly judging an utterance that her husband has made in front of the church, which might prove embarrassing before the whole church community. And fourth, and I think this is dispositive on the question, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, it says the same thing as the law of Moses. But the law of Moses nowhere forbids women from verbal participation in worship. But Numbers 12 does indicate that it was sinful when a woman tried to sit in judgment of Moses' prophetic authority. So, 1 Corinthians 14 is not prohibiting women from participating verbally in all congregational worship. It is only restricting women from verbally participating in the judgment of prophecy. And 1 Timothy 2 has got nothing to do with judging prophecy. So the context of these passages is entirely different. Second, the words which the King James translates as silence in these two passages are really quite different Greek words. The King James translated them the same, but they're not the same. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians 14, the word Paul uses to describe what a woman should do while prophecies are being judged does mean to keep silent. But that is not a good translation of the term in 1 Timothy 2. And we know that because of the other two places where this word appears in the New Testament. In Acts 22, this word is used to describe an angry mob, which Paul gets to respectfully quiet down. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, this word is used to describe the attitude that contentious busybodies in the church need to adopt as they repent of their sins. 
In both cases, the idea described by this word is a quieting down to adopt a respectful and calm demeanor. The emphasis is on tranquility, not on absolute verbal silence. So what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2 must be interpreted on its own and not as an extension of a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 14. And when we do that, we see that what Paul is describing is the attitude that a woman ought to have towards the teaching that she receives in the church. She hears teaching, she's not to respond with contention and disorder. And in the same way, the church is to see to it that her learning is not disrupted by contention or disorder, like what was happening in Ephesus, where there's all this infighting in the church. Paul says, no, you've got to be able to learn in, in peace and be able to keep learning, stay out of this controversy. That's what Paul says. So women are to learn quietly. But they are not to teach. Now, what does this mean? Let's start with what it doesn't mean. First, this is not prohibiting women from instructing other women. Paul writes in Titus 2 that older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women. We'll talk about this passage more in a few weeks. But for now, we can see that women are supposed to teach each other in the church. Second, this is not prohibiting women from teaching their own family members, including male relatives. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The ladies in Timothy's life taught him the gospel, and Paul says that's good. Remember what they taught you and continue in it. Third, this is not prohibiting women from teaching men outside of the local church. Acts 18 says, Now a Jew named Apollos came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos was a gifted teacher of the Old Testament, but he didn't know much about the gospel. And who helped him? A married couple. And interestingly, Luke gives priority to the name of the wife. It's Priscilla first, then Aquila. And the book of Acts frames this interaction as a positive thing that wound up strengthening several churches. So when Paul forbids women from teaching, he's not restricting these sorts of things. Well, what then is Paul forbidding? Well, this verb that Paul uses here, he uses 15 times in his writings, and 13 of these 15 refer to instruction in a congregational setting. So what Paul is forbidding in 1 Timothy 2 is women teaching the entire church when it is gathered together. In our church, we understand this to be an absolute prohibition that women may not preach or teach the scriptures or Christian doctrine at the Sunday worship service, adult Sunday school, or any other assembly of the entire congregation. Women are to learn in church, but they may not teach the church. That's the first pair of instructions in these verses. The second pair of contrasts in verses 11 and 12 tells us that women must be submissive while not exercising authority over men. We may wonder what Paul means here when he commands women to be submissive. Well, who does he want them to be submissive to? Apart from Christians' duty to submit to God and to submit to one another, there are three biblical instructions that require believers to submit to other people. Wives are to submit to their husbands, Believers are to submit to the government, 
and church members are to submit to church leaders. Now here, who does Paul want women to submit to? Well, there's no talk in this passage about the government, and really nothing about family life either. So I understand Paul here directing women to submit to the leadership of the local church. This forms a very clear contrast then with the, the, the other side of the coin, where Paul says women must not exercise authority over a man. Now this verb, exercise authority, seems to refer to exercising rulership or direction. Now in the local church, who is it that exercises rulership? Well, Jesus does, right? Twice we're told in the Bible that Jesus is the Lord of the church. But under Jesus' lordship, who else directs the church? Well, the, the people who hold the office of elder. Later in this book, Paul will talk of elders ruling over the church, which is one of five times that Paul uses this verb rule to describe what elders do. Similarly, 1 Peter 5 says that the elders are to exercise oversight. So elders exercise authority and oversight over the church. And this idea that Paul is thinking about eldership here fits with the immediate context of the passage. Because within three verses of this prohibition, Paul begins defining the office of elder. So I think we should understand Paul here to be saying that women need to follow the direction of church elders insofar as those elders are obeying Christ, and women may not hold the office of elder. But Paul says more here than just that women may not hold the office of elder. He precludes women from acting as an elder acts, from exercising final decision-making authority and oversight from the over the congregation, including both men and women. Now, I know this is controversial, because in our society we say if men and women are equal, they ought to have the same opportunities to have the same roles in every institution. But Paul says that while women and men are equal, in fact, God has decreed that women should not exercise the same roles that men may exercise in the local church. Now, many Christians in our day have rejected this instruction. A large number of evangelical churches and seminaries today think this instruction doesn't mean what it says, or that what Paul says here was only about what happened in Ephesus so long ago, but it doesn't bind all of us today. And so these institutions urge women to serve as elders and preachers. In fact, a recent poll shows that nearly three-quarters of self-described evangelicals believe that women should be able to preach on Sunday mornings. So many Christians today have decided that the culture is right and the Bible is wrong when it comes to gender roles in the church. I'll address that in a minute. But what I want to draw your attention to here is, is something more related to the text, which is that there are other churches that claim to follow these instructions who are still actually trying to avoid them. They will say, well, women may not serve as elders in our church, but then they'll say things to the congregation like, we understand that the elders cannot properly account for the perspective of women in our church. And so then the elders get some women together and they form some kind of ruling council where these elders make decisions for the congregation alongside women. And they say, that's 1 Timothy 2. But friends, that's not 1 Timothy 2. That's not obedience to this. Because while these churches may deny women the title of elder, they are in fact allowing women to act as elders and discharge elder-level decisional authority over the congregation. And that is still violative of these commands. Now, saying that, let me identify a few things that I think do not violate these commands. 
because Paul is talking about exercising final ultimate decision-making authority over the congregation, I do not think that this instruction prohibits ladies from helping to organize events, programs, or ministries that may have men serving in a voluntary capacity. I also think that this command does not prohibit women from receiving delegated responsibilities from the elders to perform duties on behalf of the whole church that the elders need to be done. I say that because responsibility is not authority. I also think that this command does not prohibit women from facilitating or contributing to discussions in various subcommittees that may involve both men and women, which ultimately report to the elders. No, Paul here seems to be prohibiting only the performance of those tasks of the eldership, making final decisions that govern the church. Now here at Redeemer, the elders under Christ and under the congregation exercise authority over every ministry and aspect of the life of this church. In this way, every aspect of the church remains under male authority, which is God's design. Women here may do a great many things. And yet, we understand that Christ, speaking through the apostles, has commanded that women may not teach the congregation or act as an elder. Instead, ladies are to tranquilly focus on learning and growing as a disciple of Jesus in submission to God's word and the leadership of the church. And this is a perpetual instruction. We see that elsewhere in this passage, back in verse 8. When Paul says, don't pray angry prayers, he says, that's true for every place. That's for every church. In verse 9, Paul talks about what is proper for all women who profess godliness. That's a universal statement. And now Paul's going to give some more statements that show he intends these instructions to have universal and timeless force. As Paul grounds his commands about gender roles in humanity's common origin and history. We see this beginning in verse 13, as Paul now gives two reasons for why women must learn and not teach, and why they must be submissive and not exercise authority. These are rooted in the earliest chapters of Genesis. First, Paul says in verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Earlier we saw that God made men and women in his image. Men and women are equal in essence. And yet, while men and women are both image bearers of God, they were not created at the same time or in the same way. They were created in a sequence and with different purposes. Genesis 2 tells us God made Adam from the dirt, and God immediately gave him a job to tend the garden. But woman is formed in a different context. Man needed a helper for his duties, so God created Eve. And she was formed differently than Adam was. She was constructed from one of Adam's ribs. And these differences are significant. 1 Corinthians 11.8 says, Man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Man was created without reference to woman, but woman's creation and function were tethered to the man. She was made from him and for him. So the creation tells us men and women were created differently with different functions. And these differences are to be reflected not just in the household of the family, but in the household of God, in the church. And that's the first reason why women may not teach or exercise authority in the church. Second, Paul says in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now Paul moves from the creation to the fall, and again he says there's a sequence. Man and woman did not sin at the same time or in precisely the same way. Genesis 3 says that the serpent lied to Eve and she was deceived. 
And so she ate the forbidden fruit first, and she was the first transgressor. But she was not the only transgressor. In fact, Adam's sin was worse. He ate after Eve did, and he ate not being deceived. He ate knowing full well what God had told him, and he did it anyway. He knew this was wrong in a way Eve didn't, and yet he ate knowingly. Romans 5.12 tells us that it is Adam's greater sin which has been transmitted through the whole human race and which has doomed us all to death. But Eve was deceived and sinned first. And because of that, Paul says, women may not hold the office of elder, which we're going to see next week, is largely about protecting the church from being deceived. Now, I don't think that this prohibition is saying that women are more prone to being deceived than men are. But I do think it's saying that Eve's deception carried a consequence. All of her female descendants are consequently disallowed from holding an office that's primarily about guarding the church from satanic deception. So because of the sequence of creation and the sequence of the fall, women may not teach or exercise the authority of the eldership in the church. Now this reminder of the fall is a bit of a downer, but the passage ends on an optimistic note as we come to verse 15. And verse 15 is clearly optimistic because in it Paul talks about salvation. And yet exactly what Paul means in verse 15 is intensely debated. So I'm going to work through this verse slowly. Paul says, verse 15, he says, Yet she... Who is she? Many commentators want to make she a general statement about all women, but that is a natural way to read this verse. Because based on the previous two verses, I think we should expect this singular feminine pronoun to be referring yet again to Eve, the nearest other singular feminine noun. So she, Eve, will be saved through childbearing. What in the world does that mean? Well, there are three major interpretations of this difficult verse. Option one is that Eve here represents all Christian women, and salvation here is talking about salvation from sin, death, and hell. And Paul says women are saved by childbearing, meaning either literally having a child, or this term is shorthand for a woman's general duties in the home. Now there are many problems with this view. Most significantly, Paul repeatedly tells us in his, his works, or in his writings, that we are not saved by our works. So you need to know today, being a good wife ain't going to save you. Having a child ain't going to save you. No work saves you. To say otherwise would be to destroy the gospel. Moreover, this view outrageously suggests that infertile women might be disqualified from salvation, which is sheer nonsense. Infertility doesn't disqualify someone from salvation. Unbelief does. So I think we must reject this interpretation as contrary to the gospel. Option two is that Eve again represents all Christian women. And salvation through childbearing here is promising that Christian women will be protected from harm when they give birth. It's a very common interpretation. But there's a big problem with it, which is that God never promises health to believers in this world. And that many Christian women have tragically died in childbirth through the ages. In preparing this sermon, I came across a large number of ancient tombstone inscriptions, all talking about Christian women who died in childbirth. So if option two is correct, Paul here is giving a false prophecy. So again, we must reject option two. So I tentatively hold to option three. Here, Eve is Eve. She doesn't stand for anyone else. And her salvation is a result of the childbearing. In the Greek text, the word the actually appears before the word childbearing, although that is not reflected in most English translations. And I understand the childbearing here not to be a reference to any of the times Eve gave birth, 
but as a reference to a promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, where God declares that the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent that deceived her. And I understand that to be a reference to the birth of Christ, whose deity, death, and resurrection is the basis of our salvation, and who came to destroy the work of the devil. So yes, Eve sinned, but Eve is not doomed forever because of her sin. She will ultimately be saved because the prophetic word that God gave was good. Eve had a distant descendant who has vanquished Satan, sin, and death, and set right everything that Eve made wrong. And that descendant is Jesus. And this hope is not Eve's alone. Paul continues in verse 15. He says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Who are they? Paul doesn't tell us. But it seems now we've moved from Eve to a wider circle of ladies. And the idea is this. The salvation that Eve will receive can also be yours, ladies and men, if you receive the gospel in repentant faith, a faith that will persevere to the end, which will naturally produce in the life of any believer the virtues of faith, love, holiness, and self-control. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Now, let me wrap this up with some specific exhortations for us today. Number one, we need to recognize the absolute equality of men and women. I remember in college encountering a book that said, evangelicals treat women in the same way that neo-Nazis treat black people. It's an outrageous claim. But friends, we've got to be careful when we talk about gender roles because we don't want to give the wrong impression that we believe that men are superior and that women are inferior, because that is not God's design. We are all equal in God's sight and in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We dare not look down on one another. Number two, we need to recognize that men and women have been created to be different by God, and God's word tells us men and women have differing gender roles in the home and in the church. I know that's not popular. I know it's countercultural. But friends, in the end, this really comes down to the question of authority. Whose wisdom should rule the church? Whose voice should Christians listen to? Should we listen to the culture? We've already seen today, the culture's views on gender change radically, sometimes very quickly. We can't trust the culture, especially because the culture is rebelling against God. We need to trust God and his word, which don't change, and which tell us the truth. Jesus is Lord over the church, and his word has to rule in God's house. Number three. We need to recognize there are temptations that would entice men and women into using corporate worship as a way to assert ourselves and seek attention. But we are not here to see and be seen. We are not here to be contentious and push our own agendas. These temptations stumble men and women. We've seen in this passage, they can devastate churches. But friends, when we gather for worship, it's got to be about Christ. What we do, we must do in holiness with a sincere devotion to Jesus. We dare not divert the glory that belongs to Jesus alone by disrupting the congregation to vent our anger or to display our vanity. Friends, if you're wondering, should I do something in corporate worship? You need to ask yourself, is this about honoring Jesus or is this about people noticing me? And if you think that you're prone to attention seeking, don't do it. But number four, we need to commit ourselves to maintaining biblical gender roles in this church. It's easy for churches' views on gender to slide over the years in one direction or another, becoming either gradually more permissive about what women may do until ultimately they're doing the stuff Paul says they can't do in this passage, or becoming gradually more restrictive about what women may do until they disallow women from doing the stuff the Bible says they can do. 
But friends, God's word is not on a journey of transformation on this subject. It isn't changing. And so what we need to do is identify what we think God's word requires of us, and then we need to hold firmly to that without changing as well. And frankly, I think what we've said here today is a pretty fair interpretation of what the Bible says about these matters. So I would urge us to basically hold these positions going forward without sliding in one direction or the other. Now this requires intentionality and commitment because we can expect that the world will always be pressuring us to conform to its own wrongful views on this subject. So for clarity's sake, let me tell you right now what our elder board has concluded, what women may do and may not do in this church. And I want to tell you that what this current board has concluded is the exact same thing that every other elder board has concluded in the history of this church. And that every man who has ever served this church as an elder held to the same thing I'm going to tell you right now and voted for the same thing I'm going to tell you right now. We have not changed on this. Number one, women should evangelize unbelievers outside of church and should use their spiritual gifts to serve inside the church just like men. Number two, women may pray verbally and publicly in every service of the church, whether men are present or not, provided that their attire is appropriate and consistent with biblical norms about gender and sexuality. Now, look, I go to the Wednesday night prayer meeting. I know that some of our women are uneasy about this idea that they may pray in public, usually because of something they've been taught in the past at some other church. And if that's you, I want you to hear from me. We're not telling you or requiring you to violate your conscience. Paul says in Romans 14:5, let each one be convinced in his own mind. You need to do what you think is right. But I also want to urge you to be sure that it's the scriptures that are forming our consciences and not the traditions of men. So I would ask you to study these matters on your own in a diligent way and pray about them. And at least be open to having your views on these subjects reformed if you realize that you're subscribing to something other than what the Bible says. Now, because the elders have determined that women may publicly pray, women may also lead congregational singing and music because worship music is basically a public prayer to God. Number three, the New Testament tells us that women in the ancient church prophesied. That is, that they spoke revelatory words given to them directly by God. Our elders do not believe that the gift of prophecy is in operation today. However, there is a functional equivalent to, the, to prophecy to the declaration of God's word, which is reading the Bible aloud, because that's just communicating what God has said verbatim. Uh, since women were allowed to prophesy in the ancient church, we likewise believe that women may read the Bible aloud in the congregational setting today. But if they do so, they must do so without comment, because women are not to teach the congregation, and commenting on the scripture would be teaching. Number four, women may not preach or teach in any congregational setting. Number five, women may not hold the office of elder or act as an elder in any way. I'm going to talk about the office of deacon in two weeks' time and whether women may hold that office then. We believe that all these principles are consistent with 1 Timothy 2, but we also think these matters are not worth breaking fellowship over. If you've got questions or comments, you want to talk about this, we'd love to talk about it with you. We like to talk about the Bible. But friends, we need to commit ourselves to standing for what the Bible says in these matters. May we stand where the Bible stands. May we embrace the truth of male and female equality. We may, we, may we embrace the truth that men and women are different. And may we embrace the truth that women are to learn but not exercise authority or teach the congregation.